Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by writer Anne Banks. Anne Banks is an award-winning journalist whose work has been featured in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Nation, The Smithsonian, and The History News Network, to name a few. Anne has also edited an anthology of oral histories from The Federal Writers Project, First Person America, and co-produced a radio series for National Public Radio. Anne received a fellowship from the Alicia Patterson Foundation, and she is also a published author of eight children's books. Anne is the author of Confederates in My Closet, an anthology which captures Anne's poignant and sometimes painful journey through her family's legacy as slaveholders and owners of two cotton plantations in Alabama by sharing familial archives, relics, and stories. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you for having me. And we are so excited to have you here. And I want to start by citing a portion of your website, which offers some insights about how you launched the project Confederates in My Closet. You state, quote, for many white Americans, the murder of George Floyd was the moment when they could no longer look away from the pervasive racism all around them. It stirred widespread protests and has led to everything from the toppling of bronze Confederate generals to the stripping of Confederate names from American military bases. These blows against the continuing veneration of the Confederacy encouraged me to hope that such actions were only the beginning. That optimism was severely jolted on January 6th when rioters brandished the Confederate battle flag, the most potent of racist symbols in the halls of the U.S. Capitol building they had just trashed. Defeated and delusional, these marauders summoned thoughts of their predecessors, the true believers after the Civil War, for whom it was an article of faith that the South would rise again. End quote. So my first question for you is, if you could speak to me about the Capitol riots on January 6th and the effects that those riots and what you saw had on you, seeing the brandishing of the Confederate flag in the halls of our U.S. Capitol building, something which has never historically occurred before in this country, by the way. Well, seeing that Confederate flag, the photo that's been shared most widely is of a man waving the Confederate battle flag right in front of a very large oil portrait of a very famous abolitionist whose name slips my mind at the moment. But the ironies are really horrific. And it confirmed in me, seeing all those Confederate flags and Confederate symbols, and it confirmed in me that those images still have a potency 
at for the white supremacists in this country who were involved in the insurrection. And that's why I feel it's important. I mean, in some ways, what I'm writing about, a lot of it, it happened a long time ago. It's history, definitely. But I think it's, it's history. It's today's history as well. So seeing that inspired me to write the op-ed piece that I just published in USA Today. I actually think it's in the print edition today. Connecting my own family history, my great-grandfather had uh, two plantations near Montgomery, and he was also an apologist for slavery. So he wrote articles about how the South never could have been cultivated without the labor of African-Americans, or Africans, as he called them then. And so it made me really see that the whole question of reparations, it just kind of brought it right to the fore. And to me, it connected very much to the need to examine this history directly. Absolutely. And let's move to that piece, which has been so well received in, in USA Today. And I will have the link to that article in the podcast notes. And the title of the article is, I Couldn't Unlearn the Name of my great-great-grandfather's enslaved person, and I didn't want to. And you go on to state that America was built on the backs of enslaved Africans. The debt keeps compounding and can never be repaid. As you stated, your great-great-grandfather, A.J. Pickett, owned two cotton plantations in Alabama, and he was a historian and apologist for slavery. And I just want you to tell me more about this and how it correlates to how you launched Confederates in my closet. And I just want to offer this anecdote, which is sort of in the article. And you indicate you opened your silverware drawer and noticed a familiar silver serving spoon that had been handed down in her family. And for the first time, it occurred to you to investigate the name on the handle, L.P. Walker. And so if you could just tell me more about some of this family history, about your great-great-grandfather, and some of these heirlooms, which you stumbled upon. Well, the spoon, I didn't exactly stumble upon it. It was right there in my silverware drawer all along. It's just like, as I've learned so much in doing this project, there's knowing things and knowing them. And, and so just one minute, you know, you'll see something that's been there all along. This was a spoon that, a silver serving spoon, that is engraved L.P. Walker to Eliza. And I never even looked that up. But when I did, once I, after I'd started working on my website, Confederates My Closet, I learned that L.P. Walker was the first Secretary of War of the Confederacy and had a number of other roles in the Confederacy after that and was married to an ancestral cousin of mine named Eliza. So when I did that, when I looked him up and I figured out who he was, uh, and he was... I want to say, of course, because he's in my family, a slaveholder in Alabama, that spoon was undoubtedly polished by slaves that ended up in my possession. And that kind of really set me back because it's so specific and concrete. My great-great-grandfather wrote a, lot, a number of articles and also a book, History of Alabama, but he, he talked about enslavement, at, he called it mild domestic slavery. And, and that was amazing to read that. But to, a spoon really is something. And so it, it hit me in a different way to kind of engage with the spoon. Wonderful. Thank you for that response. And 
What I thought was really interesting is that it took you a while to muster the wherewithal or the interest in going through the items that you knew were in your familial archive. And in fact, you indicate that for decades you harbored in the back of your office closet an archive that you'd inherited from your father's Alabama kin. Wills bequeathing family oil portraits, yellowed newspaper clippings about antebellum homes turned museums, and just an incredible archive of, of history. And you nicknamed this trove the pile, and, and it kept it in quarantine. And you even indicated if these bits and pieces told a story, you weren't quite ready to hear it. I want to learn more about you, about this reticence, because, you know, it's such an interesting narrative that you offer, and I haven't heard this perspective. We know that there were Caucasian slaveholders in this country, and obviously their families still exist here today. But this is such a deeply personal viewpoint that you offer. And, you know, you, you had... A struggle to even confront this. So tell me about that a bit more. Well, I think it started actually after Donald Trump was elected president. And I saw, as many people did with total horror, this kind of resurgence of a kind of white supremacy that I guess we now have to realize was hiding all along, but we just were looking away. And so that was what inspired me to go and start to uh, dig in to the pile. Another thing is that I felt in general that genealogy, I didn't see it as a path towards social justice. I saw it the opposite, the way that I felt like some members of my family used genealogy and tried to push it off on me was kind of as ancestor pride. You know, look who we're descended from. And and I didn't really want any part of that. I wanted to have, you know, a life that started with me, as I can, many young people do. But when I really realized you know, as I say in the piece, there's knowing and knowing. I mean, you can know something and it just doesn't hit you. And I think right now I'm seeing even more. I mean, that process is not over. You know, the more I learn, the more I think, the more I kind of research, it still packs a wallop, an even deeper one. One thing I was really happy about in the response to the article is that people wrote and said, this is sort of like the beginning of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which we've never had in this country about slavery. And, you know, I felt like my mission is to try to use my family history to examine and undermine the lost cause thinking, which is what you saw in such force at the Capitol that day. The South really won the propaganda war. I wrote about that quite a bit in my um in my website, Confederates My Closet. I mean, it's just quite astonishing how how much they did that. And that was partly because of some of my um, ancestors, the widow of, of General George Pickett, who devoted the rest of her quite long life to, you know, doing things with the United Daughters of the Confederacy, like censoring textbooks, putting up monuments, all of those sorts of things, which have contributed to the sense of kind of grievance around, quote, what they call heritage in the South that you see still existing today. I think that is a great point because you state this on on the blog, and I think a lot of people would agree. I'm from the North, though, I have to add, and I'm an Indian American woman born and raised in this country. But you indicate for a long while, I believe that the Civil War was over. And 
obviously there's a lot of history buffs in this country and globally. And so there's a huge fan base around the Civil War from hobbyists who try to reenact favorite battles to history buffs who debate the fine points of military strategy. But you encountered members of these fervent and possessed subcultures on the internet, and and they're occurring in real time. And as you stated, we did see them during the Capitol riots, and and we've seen a resurgence with President Donald Trump and and his populist movement. And so I guess I want to know for you what you think, in your opinion, opinion, what is triggering this resurgence in white supremacy and interest in in Confederacy? I think in some ways it never went away. It's just that people like me were looking somewhere else. I think certainly people have pointed to um, the election of Barack Obama as a a triggering event for this sense of, of white grievance, which is really so misplaced because, as many people have pointed out, the majority of people who were in this insurrection were not the kind of white underclass barely getting by. They were, you know, professors. They were doctors, lawyers. Uh, I don't know if there were professors. I'd be surprised, but probably. Anyway, they were definitely middle-class people. And it's so shocking that they could have that kind of protest and hold those beliefs. But I think white supremacy never never went away. And the more you kind of study the history you see, I mean, of lynching, of, of, you know, all the different laws that have been passed, everything, that slavery just continued along an unbroken line from the end of the Civil War to now mass incarceration and redlining and many other methods of discrimination and terror. And one of, in the USA Today article, you mentioned about a young boy, a child really, a two-year-old, who was a victim of something called the Reverse Underground Railroad. And I had heard about this as I researched for this podcast, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the story of Milton and his kidnapping that you came to find out in researching through your family archives. Well, I learned about his kidnapping actually from Karen, my friend Karen Erosco Gutierrez. What happened was when I started researching this question of my great-grandfather's slaves that he held in his plantation, I went to a website called Afrogenius, which is basically for African-Americans who are trying to connect their family tree and try to understand, uh, try to find people who can maybe give them some information. Because for many decades, slaves were not even listed uh, with last names. So it's very, very hard to do this kind of genealogical research. So I went on Afrogenius and there was listed there, someone had posted an inventory of my great-grandfather's slaves and their ages and first names. And there was a note, this woman, Karen, Karen Gutierrez, who said she was looking for information, any information about an Alabama slaveholder named A.J. Pickett. And so I wrote to her and said, "Mm, that's my great-great-grandfather. And she wrote back and said, oh, I've been looking, I'm so happy to hear from you. I've been looking for you for years. And for many Black descendants of enslaved people, they are trying to be in touch with descendants of enslavers because they feel like they might have information that can help them trace what happened to their ancestors. 
So Karen and I corresponded for a while and she said, you know, is there anything in your archive that would help me identify? She told me about what happened about Milton is he and his family were free people of color in Iowa. And what happened was that after the law was passed against importing slaves, there was a great business of uh, kidnapping them and somehow taking them down the river down south because they couldn't import more slaves. So his whole family was kidnapped. He was two years old. And they were taken down the river, probably by boat, and ended up on the picket plantation. And this Karen knew from oral history because her great-grandfather, Milton, had survived the Civil War. He'd been very young, and he had escaped and, in fact, joined the Union Army and then went back to Iowa. And so there was oral history from him, what he told his children and they told their children. And what he had told them was that he had been enslaved on a plantation by someone named Pickett in Alabama. So Karen had figured out that this was no doubt A.J. Pickett, that the dates were right. So, but she wanted to confirm this. She wanted to find some documentary evidence that would be so meaningful to her to know that. So we, after corresponding for a while, we decided to go to a Montgomery together and look in the archives, which we did. And, and an amazing story, it was kind of a needle in the haystack. She had never seen Milton's name in any of the accounting of A.J. Pickett's slaves. So that had been a dead end for her. So I went down there and what ended up happening was that it turned out that he and his family had been put into trust by A.J. Pickett in favor of his wife. And this was not at all an unusual thing. There were like 11 slaves in this particular bunch, probably including Milton's family parent, but we don't know that. That's just speculation. So we went to the archives and we were looking at bills of sale and they have a record of like any bill of sale that involved A.J. Pickett. So, you know, there were like uh, mules, there were, you know, farm equipment, there was this or that, and they were Negroes. So they were just listed in these transactions. So Karen was able to find the trust document, which showed that Milton was put into trust with a judge named Graham, which is why his name had not turned up in the inventories, because... Um, he was technically owned by this judge named Graham. And so then Karen was able to, to establish uh, a fixed point for him, which was hugely meaningful to her. And this actually is an amazing story that is part of your article for Smithsonian Magazine. And I will have that link in the podcast notes as well. But what an amazing story where you and Karen... Orozco Gutierrez travel to Alabama together. And as the article states, one is descended from an enslaver and the other from people he enslaved. Together, you travel to the Deep South to learn about your family's past. What a powerful journey and one I certainly have never heard before. So if you could just tell me a bit more about that, you certainly did enlighten us about this amazing story regarding Milton, but any other discoveries from that trip? Well, Karen and I went out to where the plantations had been. They're torn down now. And there was this kind of cracked historical marker about A.J. Pickett. And, you know, we took a picture of ourselves standing in front of it. The discovery of Milton in that archive was incredible payoff. 
And then we, right at the, the last morning, we actually went to this huge cemetery where A.J. Pickett was buried. And, and that was an amazing, there were some amazing emotional experiences, I think, for us. Karen, who is, you know, Roman Catholic, elected to say Hail Mary in front of A.J. Pickett's gravestone, which was incredibly moving and amazing to me. We both had to take a chance to do it. As I said, it was kind of like going on a week-long blind date. But I could see that it would be meaningful to Karen to go down there. And later she had said to me that she thought she'd have a better chance or a better reception or whatever at the archives if she was there with a descendant of you know, a white, obviously, descendant of A.J. Pickett. And at first I thought, well, I don't know that I really, you know, that that's really the case. But now looking back on it, I certainly know why that was what she thought and that it may well be have been the case. We have no way of knowing. But it was an amazing trip for both of us. I can only imagine. And, you know, this brings us to the question of reparations. I will be having a future podcast with an organization known as Reparations for Slavery. And what's interesting is the conversation and that organization started with a dialogue that's very similar to yours. Descendants of slave owners actually researching their family history and becoming huge advocates for reparations. And and I think this is a conversation that here often it's certainly um, in the mainstream media as it pertains to political issues. And we know uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and, and others are, are huge advocates for this. But I think it's so compelling to hear it from descendants of former slave owners. And just want to see if that if that came up at all. I know it has, as, as you've just divulged to us at the beginning of the conversation. But any other thoughts on that? Well, I just watched, actually, there were the House just had hearings on, I think it's called H.R. 40, which is this bill, which originally the bill, it's been introduced for 30 sessions of Congress. And originally it was just to start a commission to study reparations. And I think they finally changed it to study and propose solutions. And I don't know whether it will get passed, this Congress or not. But the time does seem, it seems to me that this is a moment where people are more willing to face some of this history. That's what I'm finding in the responses to my piece, actually. People are saying, well, this, is, this could be a model for like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which we've never had here, and I think would be a very meaningful thing to do. So that's, you know, it's hard to know. I think this is definitely a moment where people are open to thinking about this in a different way, obviously, not all people, but more than there were. And I I mean, it's interesting to me also, there's a commission now, which Biden has signed off on, to change the names of army bases that are named for Confederate generals, of which there are 10. And I lived on one of them. My, my dad was in, in the army. And one of them is named for George Pickett, who was my ancestor cousin. And so magazine found descendants of all of these 10 generals and asked them what they thought. And it was very interesting that all but one of them thought, yes, change the names. And the descendant of Pickett was kind of my favorite because he owned a scuba diving business. And he said, well, you could put them in an historical park or you could just sink them in the ocean and they could become a coral reef. And I thought, 
Yeah, that would be great. Because <laughs> I'm a big underwater person. So I don't know if the if the resistance to this is necessarily coming from descendants. I mean, maybe some is, but I think a lot of it is just coming from people who are hanging on to the, you know, the Confederacy as a palliative for what they think they're losing. That is such an excellent point, because even when you were discussing the archives that you and Karen encountered, just to see a bill of sale and to see humans being sold and these archives, it would have an absolutely profound effect upon this country. And I I really do hope this is being incorporated into history classes. I know that there's a lot of talk about the 1619 Project, but to your point, that's such a great point. It's interesting they added that that byline on your article, but I would agree with you. And what I would like to do, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. And I do want to say that we really would like to welcome you back to walk us through this family legacy and your series of essays, which are just so striking because they do take us through the archives right from your family. And I will be having all of the links in my podcast notes to Confederates in My Closet as well. You're on the History News Network. And we just want to thank you because this has really been enlightening. As I stated, we have a lot of global listeners, but this is a global issue, a global topic. And thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. I have one quick point that I wanted to make, though, before you left, which is that I had another issue with the headline of the article, which is that the preferred term now is not to describe people as slave, because that makes their entire being that that's their identity, but to use the term enslaved person. So I requested a change in the headline, and they did that. But, and I think that at times, you know, just people do, and I just now use the term slave, but I just wanted to mention that, that the the better term to use now is enslaved, because that describes a condition, not a complete identity. No question. And the semantics are so deeply important. So thank you so much for pointing that out. And, and we can't wait to have you back again. Writer and thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sonia. I enjoyed it. <laughs>